Growing up, I wanted to be uh, an NFL football player. Any other guys in here? Any, any guys wanted to grow up? I mean, I grew up watching Emmett Smith. I mean, come on. You watch that guy run down the field, and why wouldn't you want to be like that guy? Uh, Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, come on, right? You know, this is why we're still Cowboy fans today, right? Uh, and I grew up and, and watching these guys, and I was like, man, I, I want to be like, like those guys. And uh, for a while, you know, I, I pursued that. You know, I played years. You know, I even played a little bit in college. But, you know, over time, I just kind of lost it. You know, I just kind of lost the, the drive and the motivation. And I kind of I, I lost this, this high view of football, right? You know, it's still something that I, I dabble in, you know, little fantasy football here and a little Sunday, uh, Sunday night football over here after church. You know, I, I, still, I still like it. You know, it's, it's all right, but it's not something that's, that's worth me giving my, my life to. Right? You guys know those, right? I mean, you guys have so many things when you were kids, things that you wanted to be, things you aspired to be, and now you look back and you really don't even think about it a lot. I mean, you don't even, it doesn't cross your mind. And when it does, it's kind of a nod. You're like, yeah, that, that's nice, but it's, it's just not something that I really care to, to do, right? And really what it is, is you have a diminished lack of commitment to the endeavor, right? And that's the same with me. Same with all of us throughout our life. Uh, but unfortunately, right, our view of God often looks similar, doesn't it? I mean, there's no one sitting in this room today who says, you know, I don't even love the idea of God. Right? I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, even the idea of, of an of a eternal, transcendent God who, who wants to be involved in my life. No one's here is like, Ugh, you know, that's awful. Uh, but you may love the view of God, right? the idea of God. Uh, many of you have been blessed. You're sitting in this room. You've been blessed with the salvation of God through Christ. I mean, so many of us have been uh, so uh, entrenched in the idea of God, and, and, and we, we love it, and we want to be a part of it. And you're here this morning because some part of you says, I, I like it. Like, I want, I want it. Right? I want whatever that is. I want that in my life. Okay, But... If I could take the picture of God in your mind right now, if I could just open up your, your nice brain, very intelligent brain, and I could just reach in there and pull out uh, the encompassing understanding and knowledge of God out of your mind and, and open up my Bible and compare the two, I can imagine that your view of God isn't even close to a biblical view of God in Scripture. Now, why is that a problem? Well, that's a problem, much like my view of football, right? much of my view of being in the NFL. Uh, my, my view didn't match the reality, the commitment necessary, right? the passion to, to go all out and to do what it took to, to be that kind of person who became an NFL football player. I mean, and so many of us, even if we're saved in here, which is the danger, right? I mean, I get it when you're unsaved and you love the idea of God, but yet you fall away and you don't have anything to do with God. That's one thing. But to be a Christian in here, and, and you not having a high view of God, not having a biblical view of God, uh, and yet you try to pursue God, you try to go after God, and yet you never seem to be about the things of God. You never seem to be about the, the mission of God. What's the point? Well, the point is, is God's given us a mission, right? God, and, and this is already, when I say mission, uh, you've already decided if you want to listen to the rest of it. Because of your view of God, right? I mean, because of your view of God, right? If, I, if I've told you the president is coming in here in five minutes, and he's going to tell you a mission that we all have to partake in, you've already decided, because you know who the president is, if you're going to listen to him or not. 
Because why? Because of your view of the president. All right? And the same thing happens when we talk about the mission of God, and you have a low view of God. And so when I say God's got a mission for every believer, and we look at the Bible, and you say, I don't want anything to do with it. It's because you have a low view of God. But I bet you sometimes when you hear a passionate pastor get up here and, and he shows you this grand view of God and this mission of God, you leave and you walk out of here and you say, ooh, I love that. I, I want some of that. And then you get out there and it's Wednesday and you haven't thought about it again. You see, we're talking about your view of God and why it's important to maintain a high view of God if you want to persevere in ministry, in the mission, in every season of your life. We all have seasons in our life where pursuing the mission is easy, don't we? I mean, every one of us. I mean, there's times in our life where we're like, I, this is easy. But then there's other times in our life, whether it's trial, whether there's things going on, whether it's like I'm, in, I'm introducing new kids into my life, or, or if it's I got a new job, or I've just moved across the country, and i got to put the mission of God on hold because there's just some things I've got to do. Well, it's a high view of God that's going to keep you on the mission of God, and it's a low view of God that's going to have you not persevering in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of all the things in our life that can keep our mind away from God. And unless we raise our view of God to a biblical paradigm, to a biblical worldview, to a, a biblical standard, listen, here's the problem. If you won't do that, you will inevitably give up on the mission of God. It will happen. It's not if, it's when. Right? If you will not, with everything you have in your brain, all the information, all the wisdom of God that you have in your brain, and if you will not make sure that it is compatible, equal to what the Bible says about God, you're going to give up. And that's the danger, even as Christians this morning, of this sermon, is if it falls on deaf ears will be those people who abandon the mission of God. This morning in the final verses of Colossians, we're going to find four people whose view of God is apparent in their life. And you can go ahead and flip to Colossians 4. We'll be in three verses. Verse 14, verse 17, and verse 18. This is it. Today, is this the last sermon in the letter of Colossians? We're done. Isn't that amazing? We studied through the whole book since September to now. And we're going to learn the final thoughts of the Apostle Paul, the final thing that God wants us to know in the letter to the Colossians. All right, what is our goal here? Okay, our goal here is we got four people. We got Luke, we got Demas, we got Archippus, we got Paul. What's the big deal? What, what, what is important? What does God want us to know? What is significant in this text that God says, you, it's, there's the reason these guys are in here. Well, that's our goal, isn't it? Our goal this morning is this, to understand why these names are in the text. And we're going to do that by looking at what the Bible says about these people. Right? And we're going to begin to understand why these men were significant in Paul's mind. I mean, you don't write people's name on a list for no reason. Right? I mean, if you write a list of names and you write them there because there's a reason they need to be there. There's a significant reason why you wrote that person's name there uh, because there's a story behind it. And here, there's a story behind why Paul says these people. These people I want to include in the letter. There's probably more people around, but these are the ones I want you to know. Because they were significant in Paul's mind, specifically concerning the ministry of the gospel. So let's begin. Look at the verse 14. In your Bible, on your note page, 
Look at verse 14. Just the first part of it. It says there, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Okay? Uh, this is the Luke, right? You know Luke because of the gospel of Luke, right? And if you know your Bible, you also know that Luke wrote Acts, all right? This is really important already because what's interesting is if you don't know those things and you just read the New Testament, Luke's only mentioned three times in the Bible, and it's usually just, hey, he says, what's up? You know, Luke's just hanging out, he says, what's up? Uh, but if you know Luke, like, and you see, wow, you know what's significant about Luke? Like, it's not that he was only mentioned three times in the Bible, because that's not a lot, especially when you've been pounding around with the, the Apostle Paul for years. What's important about Luke is that if Luke did write Luke and Acts, which he did, okay, that means that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other New Testament author. That's including Paul. Right? By word count, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. Do you know what makes that even more important and more significant? Luke was a Gentile. You hear that? Luke was a Gentile. I thought this was a Jewish faith. Right? I thought the promise was to the Jews. Well, that is the beauty of the promise of God to Abraham. Right? That it wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for Israel. The promise was for Abraham that I'm going to bless all the nations because of you. And then through that line, right, through that promise, and then through the Davidic line and the Davidic promise, Christ came to save all the nations. All right? And then in that same line of promise, we then have a, a Gentile who we have, who has written more of the New Testament than anyone else. You see how significant that is, right? God's got a promise, and he fulfills that promise. And when you look at Luke, you've got to know something about Luke. It's important to know Luke to understand the significance of him in the passage. Something else that we learn in this passage, and this passage only about Luke, is that Luke was a physician. He was Dr. Luke, right? When you're a doctor, you'd like to be called doctor. Sometimes when you're a doctor and people don't call you a doctor, you're like, I'm a doctor, right? Right, this is the only time he's called doctor, and it's important for us. Because Luke was an ex- had extensive knowledge of the human body. He was a very bright guy, very smart guy. Actually, when you read the Gospel of Luke, pay attention to the way he describes details and people and things in such a way that the other Gospels don't do as well. Because he's a doctor. I mean, he, I mean he's very, very close. He examines things. He's very careful. He's very meticulous. I want to show you, actually, uh, if you can... Go ahead and flip over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I love hearing pages of Bibles flip. And if you're scrolling, that's okay too. I just can't hear that. Unless you have long fingernails. Luke 1. This is what he says. And look in verses 3 and 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke. right? Third third book. Luke 1, verses 3 through 4. Here's what Luke set out to do in his gospel. In the gospel account of Luke, it says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely. Did you see that? He says, listen, I haven't just heard about these things and kind of want to give you an idea of what's going on. He's like, listen, I've been following things. Like, what do you expect a doctor to do? Follow all things closely? Right? If I go to the doctor, like, I am expecting some things about my doctor. And one is, he's real meticulous. Right? He better let me know what it is and what it is in fine detail. Right? I'm paying him a lot of money. My insurance company is, I hope, to tell me exactly what's going on. And he says, I've been watching these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Isn't that also what you want your doctor to do? I mean, there are things in your life that are out of order, things that are confusing, things you don't know that's going on. And what do you want your doctor to do? Put them back in order. And when they don't, doesn't it aggravate you? 
they send you out there and they send you back out and you said, everything that person told me, I could have told myself, right? But here we have, we have a problem because there's this person named Theophilus, right? The most excellent Theophilus. Uh, and he's needing some certainty about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's needing some concrete, meticulous, detailed information about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke says, here I am. I have followed all things closely, and I'm here to write an orderly account for you. And I love in verse 4, that you may have certainty. I mean, Luke, no one was more qualified than Luke to write the gospel of Luke because he was meticulous. He was detail-oriented. He was focused. He had a mission. He had a goal, and he stuck with it. And so when, when Paul writes about Luke, and he, he just says, says, hi, I don't want to overstate anything here. And I'm not trying to overstate anything. But what I want you to see is why these people were even in there. Like, why were these people in there? Because he was useful. And he was useful in ministry. He was useful. He had skills for ministry that were helpful. He had a profession that he allowed God to utilize for his glory. And that's what I want you to put in point number one. You need to utilize your skills for ministry. Utilize your skills for ministry. Once you realize that Luke was a physician, and you go back into the text, and you watch how he writes, you're like, yeah. And not for you who have doctors who scribble things on paper, and you're like, I'm not sure what he said here. Just give me whatever medicine they told me. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, like doctors who, who are so uh, intact with their brain, and they're so, uh, so focused, and, and they're so good at what they do. Uh, now imagine those people using that for ministry. Right? Your skills and your work serve as an opportunity for you to apply your faith publicly. Right? And that is a big problem in most of our lives, where we have an implicit faith publicly. Right? We apply our faith privately, but we imply it publicly. And what your skills are going to allow you to do is apply your faith publicly. And you, you have to do it. You have no choice. Right, I love it. My, my job, I don't have a choice, right? Because, I mean, there's hundreds of people in town who know me as a pastor. Uh, and so it's not like I can go out there and, and pretend like I'm something I'm not. I mean, people walk around, hey, pastor. And I'm like, shh, shh, shh. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Right? I'm going to be like, hi, you know? And it's just, my job is very out in public. But there's many of you in here who are like undercover Christians. It's like, you know, you show up here, you're doing great, you're doing good things, but you go to work, and you may have a lot of the skills in the world, uh, but yet you don't really talk about the gospel. You don't really talk about Christ, and you don't utilize your skills for ministry. But the Bible says something completely different, doesn't it? Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I mean, the command is clear that whatever you do, and that includes your job, that includes your skills, they all have to be utilized for the work of ministry. Do everything. All those things need to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just from a practical perspective, for those who are like, well, why does it matter if I use my skills? Uh, I can't tell you how many times people come up to me and say, you know, I'm going under the knife this week. I have a big surgery coming up. But don't worry, Pastor, my doctor is a Christian. I'm like, in my mind, you know, I know why it matters, but in my mind, it's like, why does that matter? Like, why does that, you know, why not just, he's very talented, or he's the best surgeon in the world. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, but don't worry, that they're a Christian? Because it matters, right? It matters that that doctor has come out and explicitly said, I'm a Christian. Come out and explicitly said, hey, before I put you under the knife, I pray for you. I mean, it matters, doesn't it? It matters that these people have come out and explicitly told you, hey, I'm a Christian and it matters to me, and I hope it matters to you. 
And I love it, whether it's my bug guy at the house, okay, right, whether it's the, the person washing the car, right? It's good for me to know that there are Christians because it's helpful. It's helpful for me and it's helpful for them because they're applying their faith and their faith also gives me comfort. Isn't that what we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Right? It's important that your faith is explicit and you can do that in a great way when you allow your skills to be utilized for ministry. I mean, it would be great to know in this community all of the Christians who own businesses because it would be helpful to know that, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd have a, a level of comfort and confidence knowing that you're going to people who fear the Lord. And the way that they live their life and the way that they you know, allow God to rule over their finances and, and their business, all those things would be really good to know. And that's why it's important that we utilize our own skills, our own professions, our own jobs for ministry, for the sake of the gospel. And that's exactly what, what Luke did. We need to display God's glory, His character through the way that we work. I love that, and I don't have all day to do this. And so on your application questions, on the back of that page, I'm actually going to take you to Genesis, right? And I'm going to show you that from the beginning, it was so, right? From the beginning, it was always God's plan that you work for His glory. And you, when you study that this week, I want you to pay really close attention to what God had created Adam to do. He created him. He gave them responsibility, and his responsibility was inextricably tied to his identity as an image bearer of God. So if you needed more evidence to say you have got to use your skills and your profession for the glory of God, look no further than Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because just because sin entered the world, it didn't mean that Adam's job changed. It just means the difficulty of his job changed. Right? The, the difficulty, the pain associated with it. Right? The sweat and the blood that was associated with it that wasn't there before is now there. But the job didn't change. And that's the same in our own lives. The job's harder, but it, it is no different. Sometimes it makes it even harder that most of us have seen professing Christian, Christians who failed dismally at working for the Lord. Right? Don't we? I mean, we see people who say, I'm a Christian, uh, but you look at what they do for the Lord, you look at their work for the Lord. I mean, you've, you've all seen pastors, right, and ministry leaders who have just dismally failed at working from the Lord, right? Some who have walked away from ministry, and I'm not talking about the ministry uh, as a pastor, I'm talking about the ministry of serving God, right? And, and all of us have a ministry. We all have the ministry, generally speaking, and most of us have specific ministries, things that we know that God has called us to do specifically, Right? And many of us have seen people walk away from those things and by the grace of God restored, like John Mark. Right? A couple weeks ago we talked about John Mark who, who walked away from the ministry but was restored into right relationship with Paul and in the ministry. Those are great grace-centered testimonies. But we have others who have made a mess of their life and ministry, and to this day it's difficult to know whether or not they were saved at all. Right? It's difficult for us to look at their life and take an honest appraisal and say, I'm not sure where they stand with God. Why is that a problem? Because it's confusing, isn't it? It's confusing for you and it's confusing for me as we see, you know, aren't, isn't God supposed to be redeeming people? Isn't God supposed to be utilizing and building his church? And yet I see people coming in and I, then I see people say, eh, I don't want it and I go out. It's not only uncomfortable, but for the truly redeemed, it's unnecessary. Because I am saying there are Christians, there are redeemed people, who, because they have a low view of God, they quit. I'm not saying they quit the faith. I'm saying they quit working for the Lord. 
because they have a low view of God. And it's important that we heighten our view of God, that we heighten our understanding of who God is, because we have to work for the Lord. We have to live for the Lord. And I want to show you a great example of this confusing, unnecessary situation in verse 14. Go ahead and look at the next name there. Right, we have Luke, right, who's the beloved physician, and he greets you, as does Demas. And if you're, if you're a student of the Bible, you're trying to, you're trying to get your like, biblical timeline you know, in your New Testament lined up, because you're like, Demas? I know, I know De- Demas? Is he, is he saying, what is he saying about Demas here? Because if you know 2 Timothy, and you're like, I thought, I thought Demas was not doing great. And here, you're like, Demas seems like he's doing great. Paul loves the guy, Okay. But you understand that, that 2 Timothy was written uh, after Colossians. And so in, in Colossians, we see uh, Demas seems like he's doing great. But in Colossians, in verse 10, sorry, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, you jot that down. You can flip there. I'm going to be on and off of 2 Timothy 4. So if you want to flip there, you can look and see the significance of what is happening in the life of Demas. 2 Timothy 4, 8 through 10. Uh, but in verse 10, if you follow along with me very quickly, it says Demas, same guy, same guy we just talked about, same guy that's greeting people in Colossae. Is the same person in verse 10. It says that Demas is in love with the present world and he has deserted me. That's concerning, isn't it? We have a, a co-worker and a ministry partner of Paul who some years later has fallen in love with the present world and has deserted the ministry. It's a problem. It's a problem because verses 7, 8, and 9 before that say this. I mean, Paul, and you know Paul's words in the next few verses, right? Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have, all right, we're going to have to learn about it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, right? I've done my job, right? Paul's like talking about, I'm done my job. I'm actually looking forward because 2 Timothy, Paul's getting to the end of his life, right? I mean, he's writing these these pastoral epistles to these guys that he's poured into because he says, I'm not going to be here much longer. But he's like, but I'm okay because listen, I fought the good fight. Henceforth, verse 8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I love that Paul's high view of God. Did you see Paul's high view of God right there? I mean, he says, listen, like the Lord, the righteous judge. I mean, how many of us see God as the Lord, right? Exalted, high and lifted up God of the universe and the righteous judge. Right, that he's ruler of all and he's judge of all. That's already a statement of a high view of God. And because of that high view of God, he says, I have been able to fight the good fight because I've not allowed these other things to get in my way because I understand the most important thing is to understand that God is the ruler of all and God is the judge of all. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to award me on that day. But here's what's good for you and me. Listen to the rest of this. He's going to award me the crown of righteousness because I fought the good fight and I've ran the race and I didn't give up. But not only to me, but if you're there, underline this, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right? For all of those who have loved his appearing, right? his appearing as Lord, his appearance as Savior, and his appearance as the coming judge of the universe. Those who have loved that, he says, I'm going to give you the crown of righteousness. Now, what's the problem? What's confusing? What's, what's concerning to me here? Well, because he says right there in those verses that all who have loved his appearing are going to receive this crown of righteousness. But what does it say that Demas did? It says that Demas loved the present world. Right after that, do you see the problem there? I mean, Paul is making a distinction between the way that Paul has gone all out and loved the Lord and gone after the Lord, but then he, he the, the parallelism, or, or, or there, I guess what you would call it, the, the distinction here, the difference that he's making, he says, but Demas, he has loved the present world. 
you'll see the problem. Now, the problem is, is throughout history, you've had pastors and scholars and people ask the question, uh, was, was Demas a Christian or not? Was he a Christian? But I'm not going to ask you the question, was he a Christian? Now, I think, I think that's a great, worthy endeavor, but I'm thinking if Augustine didn't do it, if Luther couldn't do it, Hayden's not doing it, okay? So, uh, but we can make some, some uh, observations, and the question I'd rather ask you is this. Not that was Demas a Christian, but I'd rather ask this question. Would you want God's Word describing you as someone who has deserted God's people because of your love for this age? Right? That's, that's the question I want you to answer. I don't want you to answer for Demas. I want you to answer for you. Right? Because that's, what, that's how Demas is described in God's Word. God said, here's what I want you to know about Demas. He deserted the ministry because he was in love with the world. And all I'm saying is, do you want God to look at you and say, he loved the world more than he loved the coming of Christ? And that because of that, because he went after the things of the world, that he loved those things more than he loved Christ. I mean, I mean that's, that's the real question. And I know that you all answered no, at least you know, in here, right? You did, right? In here you answered no. When you go out there, the question you probably answered a little bit differently depending on what you were doing, what event you were going to, what thing that you wanted. But at least in here you answered no. And if you want to keep answering no, here's what you need to do, and it's point number two. Write it down in your outline, in your notes. Don't get distracted by a love for this age. Don't get distracted by a love for this age. All right, for those who believe that Demas was a false convert, cite verses like 1 John 2, 19. Right? I mean, there are those, many, right? And, and the jury's not out even in my heart, but for those who do see Demas as a false convert, they cite verses like this, which is a very great verse to describe what very well could have happened. 1 John 2, 19, jot that down. It says they, these are non-Christians, these are false converts, people who have come into the church, and then they have just left willy-nilly, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. This is the Apostle John, right? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That was pretty clear, wasn't it? I mean, there are people who, who come into church and come into ministry because, they, because, like I said before, there's something appealing about it. Isn't there something appealing? Pursuing a, a holy, righteous, transcendent God who wants, or, who wants to be involved with His people. There's something appealing to that, even for the agnostic, even for the atheist, even for the Buddhist, right? Even, even from, from the Muslim who believes that there's a God, but he's, he's transcendent, but He's not imminent, right? He's there, but He's not here. There's something even to those people, right? When, when you tell them there's a God who wants to relate to you, I mean, there is something so attractive about that. You're going to find myriads of people who want to come taste it, right? Who want to come and say, I just want, I'd like to know what it's like to have a God like that. And they come in and they hear and they listen to the word being preached and they, they may join your life group for a little while, but they went out, right? I mean, they left because they were not of us, right? I mean, they weren't Christians, right? They just weren't. But because if they were, they would have continued, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And that not that a great grace of God, right? That people who are false converts, that they leave because God wants everyone to know that they were not of us. Right? I mean, I've had even pastors that I've worked with over the years, right, uh, that they completely left the ministry. They vacated the ministry. They vacated their faith. And you know what it did? It gave me great relief. Because I watched these people live their life day to day to day, and I said, 
it's concerning, right? I mean, that, the way that they just dealt with that person, the way that they, they, the way that they didn't humble themselves there, the way that they elevated themselves there, the way that they, they don't live in a godly way here, right? I mean, and it's, and it's happened multiple times in, in my ministry. What it did for me is since God made it plain to us, it should give you comfort, right? It should give you an awareness that, hey, everyone that I rub shoulders with in my church isn't a Christian. And it should give you great confidence as a believer to say, all right, it's plain, and God, it was a grace for me. But the problem that many of these people, they leave, they go out from among us, is because they get distracted by a love for this age. There's another scripture that explicitly says it, and it comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. You can jot down Matthew 13, verse 22. Matthew, verse thir- Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. You would know this as the parable of the sower. Uh, and we're talking about the way that the seed was sown, which is, which is a gospel, right? The gospel is preached, and, and there are people in different areas, so to speak, agrarian from an agrarian perspective. Uh, and here, there was a seed that is the gospel that was sown among thorns. Okay, this is the one who hears the word, but listen to this. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Right? I mean, this is somebody who... Here's the word. They run into the church. They jump into a life, a life group. And then they realize in the preaching of the word and the community and the cost of community and the cost of discipleship, that they're like, there's some things out there that I love. And there's some things out there that I can't let go of. Uh, and, and it's asking too much of me. To take up my cross, to deny myself, and to follow Christ daily is asking too much when I have all these things over here that I just want to pursue. Right, that's why Demas left. He's like, there's some things over here that I just want. And that choked the word and it proves unfruitful. Right? And what we got to understand is that everything about this age is trying to entrap you into a lust, into a desire for this age. You know, everything about this age. And there's a reason I use age and not world. Uh, because the Greek word for Demas is in love with this present world. It comes from that word that we get the word eon, right, or age, this time period that we live in, right? He fell in love with that time. He fell in love with the things that were there in that present time. And we get entrenched and in love with the things of this present time. And the world is just trying to do everything it can to wrap you up in those things. Did you know uh, that the uh, commercial advertising industry this year, this year, right, has spent $287 billion on commercial advertisement. $287 billion on commercial advertisement. And in 2024, it's forecasted to reach $322 billion. And I know, if you're like me, you're like, I don't even know what that looks like. I, I, don't, I, I haven't seen $322. I don't know what that looks like with nine zeros on the back of it. Right? But put it this way, $322 billion has nine zeros behind it. And with $322 billion, you could purchase cash money, the 775-room Buckingham Palace, 48 times. 48 times. $322 billion. So it's an understatement to suggest and to assert to you this morning that the world is trying to get a hold of your mind, your money, and your motivation. And it's important for us, we got to understand it, like the world is trying to distract us, to help us, to want us to love this age. And the whole time in Scripture, we're told, don't get distracted by the cares and the deceitfulness of the world and the riches of this world. Right? we got a mission. Right? we got to focus on something. 
But there's another person, and I know we just ragging on Demas for a while, but he's a great example of, hey, don't, don't do this. Keep a high view of God. Because it takes a high view of God to not get distracted by a love for this age, doesn't it? I mean, there are so many things when I walk out of this, when I walk out of this building, I see it, you know, I see it on, whether it's on, online or whether it's out as I'm walking about, as I see these things, as I see the next, you know, the new house. You know, when you see how much your house is appreciated over the last couple of years, you're thinking, what could I do with the rest of that money? Like, how much of a bigger house can I buy? How much of a bigger car could I buy? How much, you know, what, what are all these things I can do, right? You're going to have to not get distracted by a love for those things if you're going to maintain a high view of God. If you're going to maintain the mission of God. It takes this high view of God to keep yourself focused on what God wants us to focus on. And Demas didn't do it. But there was somebody else who did, and he's the next guy. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, there in Colossians 4. It says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Just an observation I made when I read verse 17 and Archippus was in Colossae, and so there, and y'all know this because we also heard about Archippus and Philemon a couple of weeks ago. And Philemon, uh, sorry, and, and yeah, and Archippus was Philemon's son, and so we know he's a part of that church there. Uh, and when uh, Archippus is probably just sitting there, you know, just hanging out, and uh, he's like, "I'm glad this letter is almost over." Paul's pretty long-winded, and at the end of it, they read, "And Archippus, make sure that you fulfill the ministry you've received." You can tell him he got tightens up and like. He's talking about me. He called me out in this letter. Archippus had a ministry. And when the Apostle Paul tells you to fulfill a ministry, you're probably, I mean, you're like, yeah, I need to take that serious. But the important part about this is not just that Paul said it, that it was recorded in Scripture as God's very word. And so Archippus knew that God's very word to him was to receive and fulfill the ministry that he has been given by the Lord. You see, we know little about Archippus, but what we do know is this, that he was a committed soldier of Christ. And that's what it says there in Philemon 2, that he calls Archippus our fellow soldier. Right? That is, that this, this guy has been set apart for a ministry. He's been set apart to co-labor with us for the mission of God. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 2.4 says it this way, you're going to be a soldier? 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Talk about a love for this age, a love for this world. No soldier gets entangled in a love for the present things. It's like they have a mission. They stayed focused. They, they have a, their ambition is this, to please the one who enlisted him. I mean, they said, God is my Lord, right? God is my Lord. He is the master over my life. He's enlisted me to do the work of the ministry, so I'm not getting entangled by any of the other things that I could pursue, Whatever specific ministry that Archippus was given, we can at least assert this, that the expectation was clear, and it was to fulfill the mission. And that's the third point on your outline. You need to stay focused on God's mission. Right? Stay focused on God's mission. That's what a good soldier is supposed to do. Stay focused on the mission. Have you ever seen those, like, you had one job memes? You love them, don't you? Like, I mean, because they're just something that, that has been completely misrepresented. They have done something just so outside the margins that you're like, this is ridiculous. Like, you obviously weren't taking your job seriously, right? 
Uh, I was looking at these the other day, and I found one online, and it was a, a Walmart back-to-school kiosk. You know, you know those ones, you're going to see them next month, and it's like, you, when you look at them, you know, I'm going to find map pencils, I'm going to find crayons, I'm going to find notebooks, I'm going to find folders. Uh, and on this Walmart kiosk of back-to-school, you see the sign, and then you look down, and it's kitchen knives for sale. And you're like, ah, that's not, that's not what he's like. You had one job. Like, you literally had one job. Get these kids ready to go back to school, right? And you got them ready to be on next best chef or top next chef or whatever that, that thing's called, right? I mean, you look at that person, you have one job, right? And we have entire memes based on these people. But the, one of the biggest memes for Christians across centuries is like, you had one job. Like, you have one job. No one knows giggling at that one, though, are we? Right? Chris, we have, we have one job. To please the one who enlisted us, to fulfill the mission of God. And it's what Jesus said, right? I, I don't want to leave here. You know the mission, but we don't leave here without saying it. Right? Go. And that's not the mission. Go in, you have to go to do the mission, but it's not the mission. The mission isn't go. Go and make disciples. That's the mission. That's your imperative. That goes a participle, right? Going is like, well, you got to go to make disciples, of course. But making disciples, that's the imperative. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I've com- all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you till the end of the ages. Go and make disciples. That's the mission. And we have one job. So yeah, you're going to use your profession to do this. You have one job. I mean, your profession is an opportunity for you to apply your faith publicly. But you got one job. My one job isn't a pastor. It's to make disciples. I, just, I get to make disciples by being a pastor. And whatever your job is, your job isn't whatever your title is, your job is to make disciples. You're a soldier of Christ if you want to know your title. You have one job. And to have a high view of God means that you do your one job. Right? We're going to make disciples. If you want help staying on the mission, I'll give you a couple of things you can do to stay focused on God's mission in your life. And then the first thing you need to do is you need to regularly acquaint yourself with the mission manual. You like that? You need to acquaint yourself regularly with the mission manual. Like, if you don't know what the Bible teaches, and remember, I'm not talking about the Bible, like, here's the Bible, here's the, here's the Quran, right? I mean, here's, uh, you know, here's the Jehovah Witnesses New World Translation. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, like, hey, here's a whole bunch of little holy books, right, that, that you can choose from. I'm saying, listen, uh, the self-authenticating message of the Bible that we see explicitly in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says all Scripture, all the Bible, has been breathed out by God. Theonoustos, right? It's been breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? I mean, that, you got to know that, right? We got to know that one. Because that's, the, that's what the mission manual says. The mission manual says the manual is good for you to use, to grow in your relationship with God, to be prepared for the mission of God. And so I have to, I have to take it and I have to be acquainted with it. Because it tells me that, but it also tells me a myriad of other things. I love it. I love the Bible. You love the Bible? All right, good. I'm glad we're on the same page. All right. You need to be acquainted with the mission manual, but you also need to do this, and it's... Uh, it's not secondary, but we often make it secondary. It's primary. It's not God's word, but it's primary as well. And it's you need to stay connected to other missionaries. I've done blowing your mind, right? You're like, I haven't even gone anywhere. I've gone to Asia or Africa. No, I'm saying that when you're in here and you have a mission, right, 
a mission, the, the, the noun, right, missionary, right, you're a person, the, the person who is on a mission is called a missionary, right, and you don't go to, you don't have to go to China, to Africa, to South America, to California, amen, all right, to be a missionary, right, you are a missionary because you have a mission, and your job is to fulfill that mission, you need to stay close with fellow missionaries. You need to be in community. I mean, there is no one who does worse in their mission than the ones who, who mission alone. Right? I, I've heard it this way a million times. Like, right, if you, if you want to run fast, run alone. But if you want to run far, run together. Right? Isn't that right? I mean, I, I don't want Compass Bible Church to get a year down the road and we have a thousand people coming to church. And then, like, the next year it's like we die because we just did a terrible job of, you know, being in community and running together. What I want to be is to be known in this community and in the state of Texas and maybe in the country. I mean, that church right there, I mean, they're all together. I mean, like Philippians, you know, they have their arms locked together and they're living life together and running this thing all, all together. I mean, none of them is, is out running way ahead and none of them is left behind. I mean, we're all running together. And that's what it looks like to stay focused on the mission by being close to your fellow missionaries. And the last thing right there, I mean, it takes us into the next verse, but if you want to stay on mission like Archippus, you need to take Paul's final words to heart in verse 18. Right? Paul's final words. And I love this. You need to pay attention to this because something I hope strikes you a little bit uh, when you read this. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. You're like, yeah, the whole letter is from you. Why did you just tell me that you just wrote this part? Like, why just this part? Why not, like, the whole thing? Well, because you need to know something about uh, letter writing in that time. It was common in those days for someone to dictate or to letter or to speak it, and for a scribe or uh, an assistant, if you will, a secretary, uh, to write the letter out. So as you were speaking, I would write the letter, right, and I would write it all. And, you know, there would be people, right, who, if Paul wouldn't sign a name at the bottom, who would get this letter and say, that's not Paul's handwriting, right? That, this is not Paul's, you know, this isn't Paul's handwriting. And for those of you who say, I've never heard of such a thing, what do you mean that someone else wrote it? Well, Romans 6.22, literally, it says it. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. Well, we're going to have to have Bible class. All right. All right. All right. After this, meet me in the compass room. All right. Bible class. Yes, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, right? Are we all in agreement? But it says in verse 22 of chapter 16, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. I said, huh? Who's the Apostle Tertius? Well, he wasn't, right? He was, a, he was just the assistant, right? He was just the one who was penning the letter that the Apostle Paul had spoken out loud. And so we know that it happened a lot. And here in Colossians, to the church in Colossae, the, the writer was most likely Timothy, as chapter 1, verse 1 infers. You know, hi, I, the Apostle Paul, with Timothy, right? Uh, he's the one who was probably penning the letter that was written, spoken by the Apostle Paul. And so it's important that he does end it. He snaps the pen away from Timothy. If he's angry, he probably wasn't angry. He probably just asked for it. Uh, he took the pen and he said, this, though, is my handwriting. So he's putting his signature on the letter is what he's doing. And he's saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And there's a couple of things that he wants us to know. We're going to focus on the first one here. Remember my chains. I mean, Paul says, I can write anything I want. I mean, this is my signature, right? I mean, if I say, hey, you got one line on the letter, write it wherever you want. The most important thing that you can think of, write that uh, to encourage the church. And Paul gets the letter and he says, hey, here's what you need to do. 
you need to remember my chains or remember my suffering. See, Paul was no stranger to suffering and persecution, and he reminds us here, like he does in 2 Timothy, right? he's getting close to the end of his life, he's writing to his beloved, uh, his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, the one who even penned the letter that we're in now, and he says this in chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 in 2 Timothy. He says, you, young Timothy, have, you follow my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And he keeps going, it's a little uncomfortable. You followed my persecution and my suffering, right? Because you saw what I suffered in Antioch and Iconium and, and, and Lystra. And he's like, and I endured, but I was persecuted, and the Lord rescued me. And then it gets real uncomfortable for you and me, because in verse 12, there's a truth claim. And it says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's when it gets real uncomfortable, isn't it, for you and me, right? I mean, when it says here, like, all, not like some, not like just the pastors, right? No, it's like, it's like all of us. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the reason why is in verse 13. Because there are evil people and imposters. They're going to go on from bad to worse. I mean, it's bad, but the forecast is it's going to get worse. I mean, that's the problem here. And what we've got to do as Christians who are maintaining a high view of God is we need to do this, and this is your last point. You need to expect a measure of suffering, right? If you want to really not abandon the ministry, like if you want to persevere in ministry, if you want to keep running the race like the Apostle Paul, like Christ, like all the faithful Christians who've gone after them, the, church, the, the early church Christians who many of them were torn apart by wild beasts in the Colosseum and all towards things because they were just like, I'm going to finish the race, right? I'm out here, I'm going to be faithful, and I know that there's going to be some persecution, we got to expect a measure of persecution. I'm not saying that any of us are going to get eaten by wild beasts outside. What I'm saying is there's a measure of it, and you need to expect it. Because here's a problem. Uh, many Christians won't, uh, they, they often run away from the mission when suffering comes because they weren't expecting it and they weren't prepared for it. And so from right here, you know, what's the date? What is this? The 26th, June 26, 2022, to Compass Bible Church here in New Braunfels, Texas, you need to expect a measure of suffering. So now when it happens next week, next month, next year, you don't run from it. You expect it. You know that's what the Bible teaches is going to happen. And Paul says, remember my chains. And you say, but, but Pastor Hayden, PH, PH. Okay? We live in America, USA. And as a matter of fact, we live in T-E-X-A, as we live in Texas, right? I mean, what persecution am I going to find here in God's country? I mean, that's what you're asking, and I know you're asking me. Where are we going to find this suffering? Well, you tell me. I'm going to ask you a question. You tell me what would happen to you if you regularly shared the gospel at work. Hmm. Teachers, look at me. What would happen to you if you consistently shared the gospel at school with teachers and the students? Tell me. Lo, who would not be persecuted? Tell me what would happen if you just shared the news of salvation, of the only way to be right with a holy God. It's for those teachers, for your coworkers, and for your kids to, to understand that there's a holy God out there who wants a relationship with you, but he's holy, and he's just, and he's perfect. And any holy, just, perfect God who is worth his salt, is going to say, I'm not allowing sin into my presence because if sin is into my presence, I'm no longer holy and I'm no longer perfect and I'm no longer just. But I am just and holy and loving, so I provided a way for you to get to me, and it's through Christ. There's not a more loving message in the universe. And you can turn on the news right now and find a lot of unloving messages, and that's the message of love. And you tell me what would happen if you preach that message. 
Tell me what's going to happen when you go to Thanksgiving with your extended family and you say, hey, guys, you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You tell me what's going to happen. Right? For those of us who are never going to receive persecution, you tell me what's going to happen. Right? Tell me what people are going to say when you believe that being made in the image of God means that every soul has a right to live. Right? You go turn on the news right now and tell me what the world thinks about that. And you tell me that you won't receive persecution. You see, the problem is, is you tell me, and I'll point the finger at me too, right? We tell ourselves that we won't receive persecution because what we're really saying is we won't participate in the work of ministry so that we won't receive persecution. And if we really have a high view of God, we're going to participate in the work of ministry knowing that inevitably suffering is going to come. And that's why it takes a high view of God. That's the reason sometimes when you see people out there who are doing great things for the Lord, you kind of look at them like they're a little freaky because they are, right? And the reason they're a little freaky is because they just, they, they have a high view of God. I mean, it's like their view of God is, actually matches a biblical view of God. And the people who are kind of like, ah, I don't know, I don't want to deal with that. You take what's in their mind and what they think about God and you open up the Bible and you say, yeah, that doesn't match. And you open the freaky person's mind and you're like, yeah, more of that matches that doesn't. That's, that's strange. Right? Right? That's not good for us, right? I mean, we, you know, I'm, not saying, I'm not telling you to go storm the castles, but I'm saying you at least have to recognize to be faithful to God means that you need to expect a measure of suffering. Having a high view of God means that in this world, it's His word, it's His will, no matter what may come. I mean, can we agree with that this morning? Like, it's just, just no. To have a high view of God means that right, it's, it doesn't matter. Whatever goes on, it's His word, whatever His word says, whatever His will is, no matter what may happen. Right? And, and it does start with this. Like, knowing full well that I'm going to receive misfortune, right? And that's so often what that word anxiety uh, is, like the Paul, the, 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 uh, well, the apostles and, and Christ uses, right? Don't be anxious about these things. You're anxious because you don't want to receive misfortune. Right? A lot of times you don't share the gospel because you know some misfortune may come into your life. And it's really what that word means. Don't be anxious. Like don't, don't be afraid to receive some misfortune and some adversity because you're going to make disciples. And actually, it starts with knowing that you will receive some adversity, some misfortune, when you're making disciples. Right? And it's having a high view of God that says, though I may suffer, though I may suffer, I'm going to do this. I'm going to entrust myself to a faithful creator while doing good. You know who says that? The Bible, 1 Peter 4, 19. Right? I will entrust myself to a faithful creator while doing good. While I'm doing what God's called me to do, I entrust myself to him. Now, that was pretty hard, wasn't it? Okay, let me give you the, the greatest news ever. And I love that, that Paul, at the very end of this letter, ends the letter with an inclusio. Right? You don't know what that is. You at least know that he sandwiches the bad boy. Right? I mean, he just takes it up here, and he takes it down here, and he says... All right. At the beginning of the text, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you from God our Father. Isn't that comforting? Right? Like in, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says this, Grace to you. Like, you know what, what does grace mean, remember? Unmerited favor. Oh, man, we, okay, we're going to have to Bible class right after this. All right, Sunday school back in action here. Okay? All right. It means unmerited favor. Right? It means you get something that you didn't merit. You get something that you don't deserve. Right? That's when he says, when he says grace be with you, don't ever use the word grace without understanding what you're saying. Because right? it means that you got what you didn't deserve. Right? And what you deserved was none of the mercy of God. And you got it. 
And he says, grace to you. You receive the grace of God so that you can do all of these things. And I want you to recognize that's, what the, that's how the letter functions. At the beginning of the letter, Paul never says, you do it. It's going to be on your power. It's going to be on your work. It's going to be on your merit. It's going to be on your energy. It's going to be all about you. Not what it says. He literally begins the letter by saying, grace to you. Like, all of these things are part of being a Christian, but it's the grace given to you that's going to allow you to do those things. Yeah, so if you've been here and you weren't at the first sermon ever, you missed this part. And if you're someone who comes to Compass Bible Church and say, they just sure talk about works. They sure just talk about the things we have to do all the time. Yeah, because the Bible does talk about the things that we ought to do all the time. But it's the, it's, it's the genesis, right? It's, it's, the, it's how that comes about. Like, where do we get the ability to fulfill the things that God commanded us? By grace to you, right? By the grace given to you through God in Christ Jesus, empowered through the Holy Spirit to do the work of ministry. All those things you can do because the grace is given to you, right? That's the beginning. And I love it right here. I mean, he could have ended it. He didn't have to say this, but he says, but you got to remember how you're going to fulfill these things. Grace to you gives you the ability to, to do it. The grace that is with you gives you the strength to do it now. You hear what I'm saying? Right? You have the ability because of grace to you. Right? You can do it now. You can fulfill that because of the grace that is with you. That is the grace that you have in Christ. Right? And so I, I want you to realize that you've got to utilize your skills for ministry. You can't get distracted by a love for this age. I mean, you've got to stay focused on God's mission, and you need to expect a measure of suffering. And all of these things you can do with a high view of God, and you can do it with a great fervor and a great zeal, because at the end of the day, grace be with you. Right? The unmerited favor of God be with you. All the things that you don't deserve be with you in Christ Jesus, because you don't deserve a thing. And God gave you all the spiritual blessings in heaven in Christ Jesus. And that means this, right? When, when I fail, when I utterly fail, right? My, my neighbor came up to me and says, I want to know the gospel. And you said, I just, I don't. I know what you guys think about people who like the gospel, and it's not great. And, and, and you shirk the responsibility. Okay, repent because that's a sin, right? But grace be with you, right? You deserved condemnation long ago when you didn't get it. You think, you think you're going to be condemned now because you messed up one time? grace be with you, okay? It doesn't mean you don't repent. It doesn't mean you, you keep on sinning. It means you stop. Don't do that, but grace be with you when you fail, all right? And for the other ones of you, this is me, right? When you do the right thing, right? When you do the good thing, right? And then you, you pat yourself on the back and say, look at me. I did it, right? I, just, I did the things God wanted me to do. Grace be with you too, right? Grace be with you, you fool, right? I mean, you arrogant, prideful, arrogant fool, you know? Grace be with you, Right? Because you think that you could do something to add to the kingdom that didn't come from God. Grace be with you. Right? In all things as a Christian, we receive all that we don't deserve through Christ. Therefore, if we suffer any misfortune, we, we suffer any adversity, we can persevere knowing that our lives are secure in the grace of Christ. Therefore, in all things, Compass Bible Church, let the unmerited favor of God be with you. Pray with me. God, it is the, is the great truth that makes you, it makes your understanding, God, so, just so amazing in this world. 
Right? There is no other God. There is one God. Uh, but the world who, who, who creates it and makes it and, and the figments of their imagination, all these other gods, they still couldn't create a better God than you are. And all these other religions want to say, do, 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 and you say, done. You say, it is finished. And you say, and all the things I want you to do, I'm going to empower you to do through my power with the grace that I will give you to do it. I mean, no other, no other belief system, no other thing in this world can give me the assurance and the faith to persevere knowing that it is not I, but you. God, I pray that the ending of this letter, and I pray that the whole letter of Colossians serve to, to grow, to build the faith in this church, for us to see the, the, the magnificence of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the fact that the, the whole universe is upheld by the word of the power of Christ. And with all of those things, the truth of that played out in our daily lives. The way that we work, the way that we are married, the way that we raise kids, the way that we do all the things that we do, whether it is word or deed, whatever it is, God, let us do it empowered, trusting in you that your grace is sufficient for today. Help us live that out this week. In Christ's name, amen.